It's great to see you this Lord's Day. If you're visiting with Christ Community, we're thankful that God's brought you with us this morning. We're walking through a summer series in the book of Job, a man who's known tremendous suffering, a man who teaches us a lot about what it looks like to long for God to answer your questions. And so let me just, um, I want to say one thing that's not related to Job. It's about the email I sent you this week, and then I want to give a few introductory things before we read Job 28 together. If you're not receiving our weekly emails, I just want to make sure that you can write your name in the back uh, on one of those stands there toward the front of the church. We'd love for you to receive them, myself or Pastor Bill or uh, Shannon sometimes will often write a note to you and want to keep you engaged, but also kind of give you a thought of where we're headed. In all honesty, this past week I wrote something a little bit more sober to you, and, it, and it's not just because of our circumstances. It's because, and it's not because of one circumstance, I assure you of that. It's not one situation or anything of the sort. But I was working on Job 31, which I'll be preaching next week. And the way that Job is going to talk to us in Job 31 is he's basically going to say, if you have something against me that I don't know about, he says to his friends, write it down. And we'll see in Job 31 next week, he's going to go through a list of, if I've done this, then I understand God will do that. If I've done this, and at the end of what he says, it's his last words in chapter 31, he says, I've signed my signature, I'm done. But then he says, but if anyone has an indictment against me, write it down. And so I got thinking about this, we're going to look at that next week in the gospel in it, right? Because Christ took our indictment that was written down. And so there's a foresight into where we're going to go next week. And I was eager for it. But I wrote you all an email this week and I said, if you are in a relationship or maybe not in a relationship with anybody for whom you have had over the pandemic or over things related to all cultural issues or family issues or personal things, you have spent time talking about that person or assessing them. While Job's friends are fools and they don't get it right, the one thing they at least do is they go to him. And I just, I challenge our congregation in this time, you need to go to people who you have been assessing. In a way, you'd almost say, I'm going to write down what I indict you for. Because that's what Job says to his friends. He says, I, write it down if you have something against me. This is not referring to any disunifying situation that I know of, particularly in our church or anything like that. This is across being adult Christians in a world where people assess one another. <laughs> but I just sent you an email this past week that was really rooted in Job 31, and I just challenge you, please trust the power of the gospel with me, that if you feel led to assess someone from a distance, you'll sit down with them and listen and learn from them and engage with them. And you will feel obligated to be a believer in the gospel of Jesus to navigate that with them. Okay? And I could have listed about 700 instigating reasons, and I'm not referring to anyone, I assure you, of that, okay? All right, so we come now to Job 28, which is kind of in the middle of his last set of words before we get to what I just mentioned in 31, which we'll see next week. And I just want to pull you into the context a bit. Job is done talking. Um, excuse me. He's talking. Job is talking. He's not done yet. His friends are done talking. We're not going to have Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz say any more things. And so we're in this final extended response of Job. 
And he starts out and he's responding to his friends. But somewhere in this section, Job stops talking to them and will begin to talk to God, which I think really visibly starts in chapter 29. And so as I was reading different commentaries this week, just to give you a little understanding, we're in chapter 28. Job may still be talking to his friends, or it's almost like he's kind of pulled away from a direct response and rebuttal to them, and now he's just speaking again. He's just meditating, and we're going to see his posture turn to actually keep talking but toward God. So we're somewhere in that transition, and as a result of that being a transitional spot, I would just convey to you that chapter 28 is like its own poetic, beautifully contained chapter. It's not going to directly refer to everything in the past, and it's not necessarily in the Job. It's a chapter about Job's search for wisdom. Job's going to lead us in the search. And what I would say to you is it just seems sometimes like suffering people never stop searching. You know that feeling when you've been the sufferer? It just goes on and on. The search for meaning, the search for an explanation, the search for hope and happiness. It just goes on and on. I remember being a church planting uh, intern before planting the church in Pennsylvania and was with a, a, a young man who was a wonderful guy in the mother church. He had had Lyme's disease, got very sick, but it was like three years before. I remember sitting with him in all of my pomp and circumstance. I was completely wrong in what I said, just so you know. But I looked at this young man and said, why is your every single illustration always you having Lyme's disease? Like, I get that you were a college-bound athlete and it robbed you of that. Like, I get that it was a huge deal. But like, when you lead our church youth group, it's like the only thing you talk about. And I basically said, stop using that as your illustration. It's not helpful to me. What an arrogant turd. I had no understanding of the length of suffering this individual. So have you ever been around someone that suffered? It, it, it just keeps on going, doesn't it? We have truncated 28 chapters of this book down in like five weeks, but the truth of the matter is Job is just churning. He's just churning. We find that Job's with people who are kind of answer people. They give him answers to his search. And Job, as we'll see in this chapter, he's not an answer guy right now. He's a question asker. That does remind me of the man that I can be and I know that I've been redeemed out of being. But when I met my wife before we got married, it was, I remember meeting a woman who didn't have as many answers as she had questions and she had an understanding of God that was so much greater than me and all that I thought I knew about how you're supposed to study the Bible and be close to God. I grew up in the church. I was that self-righteous answer kid. Are you a question asker or are you an answer giver? How do others assess you? Because we're going to see in this text, Job goes deep in questions he has for God. There's something mature about it. There's something powerful about it. And there's certainly something instructive to it. So let me ask you to stand with me, if you will. And we will read all of chapter 28. It's an amazing self-contained unit. A little bit long, but it's, it flows sweetly with beautiful poetry. This is the word of God. Job speaks and he says, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the furthest limit the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They're forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. Picture a miner that's suspended in air digging deep into 
the mine shaft. That's the picture that Job has for us here. Verse 5, as for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the stream so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it's not found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me, and the sea says it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls." The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It's hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears. But God understands the way of it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it. Then he declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. This is the word of God. Lord, would you... Guide us in seeking wisdom with Job. And you are enabling that from the hearts in this room and that are listening and attending in this building. And we'll hear it that we, we know you know what our hearts are searching for. We know that you know that. And so would we be on a search with your servant Job and would you show us the gospel of Jesus and would you minister to us, especially those in this, in this people who are suffering deeply and searching you in the suffering. It's our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite albums, you might even know what it is. This goes back a long time, uh, but I bring it up here and there. It's the All That You Can't Leave Behind album by U2. came out in 2000. Surely you've maybe heard the song with the recurring repeated refrain where after talking about love or community or reconciliation, Bono sings out, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. We are people that search. Some people can't find what they're looking for because they're looking for the wrong thing to provide what they're looking for. Some people might be looking for the right thing, but they're looking in the wrong places. And some people gave up the look for anything a long time ago. We're a people of the search. Let me tell you a story about a searching vagabond. You may have seen the movie or read the book. I certainly love both the book and the movie. In 1996, John Krakauer published the book called Into the Wild. It was a biography of Christopher Johnson McCandless. McCandless was a young man from well-to-do D.C. suburbs. He graduated from Emory University in Atlanta, and then he literally walked away from the life that he knew. 
He gave up his savings. He abandoned his car and his possessions. He burned all the cash in his wallet and he hitchhiked to the great Northwest to see if he could find meaning in a life that would be devoid of the trappings of commercialized capitalism, which he felt had betrayed him personally. For two years, McCandless cut himself off from family, from the Western culture of money and expectation and success, and he just wandered. He just walked away from it all, so he tried. He later journaled this. Two years he walks the earth. No phone, no pool, no pets. Ultimate freedom, an extremist, an aesthetic voyager whose home is the road. And now, after two years of rambling, comes the final and greatest adventure, the climactic battle to kill the false being within and victoriously conclude the spiritual revolution. No longer to be poisoned by the civilization he flees, he walks alone upon the land to become lost in the wild. May 1992. By this time, he no longer called himself Christopher Johnson McCandless. He renamed himself Alexander Supertramp. He had supertramped his way into the Alaskan wild all by himself with just his backpack. He wrote in other journal entries later, I am reborn. This is my dawn. Real life has just begun. Four months after he walked into the wild, Moose hunters discovered the decomposed body of Christopher Johnson McCandless in the Alaskan wild. So we have to ask the question, did he ever find what he was looking for? What are the chances of finding meaning in life by walking away from all relationship that you've known to that point with just a backpack and no resources at your disposal. Is that how you find the meaning in life? And I think the bigger question that I loved about the book was, why the search in the first place? Okay, you didn't find it in your education from Emory or the expectations of your parents, but why the search in the first place? I think the, the Bible gives an answer because that's what it is to be human, created in the image of God. We are not goats or chickens or rabbits or cats, and those are the only animals I know anything about. But we're not that. We are humans who yearn for an explanation. We yearn to know why. Stephen Hawking, the evolutionary atheist, said this, we're just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star, but we can understand the universe. Well, why is it that we care, Mr. Hawking? His atheism is incomplete on that question, I would say. The Bible says that we care because since the beginning of creation, men and women have wanted to be with and to find the true source of wisdom, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, so we might become like God, right? Genesis 2 and 3, and it wasn't long after where mankind is trying to build a tower collectively to reach the heavens, to see just how far we can go with our own identity and meaning. Man tries to understand the hidden things that God has chosen not to reveal. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Man tries. Why is this? Well, the book of Ecclesiastes helps. Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also put eternity in the hearts of man, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning. 
Our eternal creator made us in his image, so he put eternity inside of us to long past the moment. And yet, Kohelet, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he says this later in his book, chapter 8, verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom, to, to find it, to see the business that's done on the earth, how neither day nor, nor, nor night do one's eyes sleep. Then I saw all the work of God and that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it. I have a question. When do we try the hardest to find it? I would propose to you it is when we are in the darkness of suffering and everything else that we sought after, where we thought we found it in that. And if that is gone or that is not what we expected it to be, then the search gets even deeper and even darker. No wonder that in the first 11 verses of this chapter, Job presents to us the life of searching of human beings and his image is deep down in a shaft in a dark cave. Because that's what it feels like to Job. His suffering has made the search matter. I've told AJ this before. AJ's our pastoral intern. Congratulations. We've got two babies born this week, a little one back there. But as AJ was preparing to do a wedding, first wedding he's done, I remember sitting and talking with him and saying, you know, my two favorite worship services are weddings and funerals for believers. Because everybody that's, that's there, it matters to them. It matters. There's a whole lot of worship services we've done and preached in and whatever. There's, there's people that sit apathetically and say, eh, I'll choose whether I want that to be true or not. But if you talk about a Christian-centered marriage and you call a husband and wife that God has brought together to embody the gospel, it is God's good gift to them. It matters. It's beautiful. And if you are in a funeral of someone you knew was getting sick and passed on or a sudden tragedy, everybody in the room is sitting there because the reason we're together matters. The darker the suffering... I would say to you, the search seems to increase in how much it matters. And that's what Job shares with us in this passage. So the first 11 verses are about man's life of searching. It, it almost speaks for itself. I won't go too deeply into it. You've heard it read. But I want you to think with me, for what do you and have you searched with this kind of intensity? Verse 3, searching the furthest limits to find it. Verse 5, it's like digging dirt up to mine for gold. Verse 8, you go so deep no bird could see it on a flyover. No beast could even find how deep and dark the hole is that you have dug because you're deeper still than they would ever go. So deep, Job says in verse 4, that those who don't go there with you they forget you. That's how deep you are. All the things on the surface that everybody else seems to care about makes them forget you because you're not in that place. I recently was with a friend who was sharing a major contextual change in their life. So I asked the question, how, since that change has happened, is, it, is life harder? Is it easier? Is it sweeter? Is it, what, what is it? And this person looked at me and said, Jim, I have lived my whole life deep inside of my own head, so it doesn't really matter where I am. How deep 
in your head and in your heart have you searched for things like relational health and meaning, like reconciliation, like hope, like purpose and design, like forgiveness, like peace, so deep that no one would claim that you took the easy way out and stopped searching when it was hard. So deep that you dig and you dig in the world around you where everyone is playing on the surface and everyone's posting in their social media and everyone's posturing their position. Everyone's politicizing everything and everyone's talking about their possessions. You don't even care because you're not on the surface anymore. That's what Job is doing in this section. What do you search for? That's just for you to maybe think through. What were Job's friends searching for? I don't know that I have a good answer because I don't think they do either, but it seems like they care a lot about being right and making sure that Job understands where he's wrong. They care a lot about God's righteousness, but they care a lot about Job articulating it in the right way that they believe he should articulate it. They care a lot about justification. We just know that they're searching for it because they won't stop talking. They finally do, but they just keep going and going and going. Now the question presents us is, what is Job searching for? And what we've seen up to this point in the book, if you've been tracking with us, is Job has a simple question of God. His question is, why? I want to know why this has happened. Why this suffering? My friends tell me they know why. But I don't think that holds. Their narrative doesn't fit my life. So, God, why the pain? Why all the loss? Why did you create me in the first place? Job's question seems to be, why? And he knows that in order to access the answer to that question, he has to have wisdom. So his question in verses 12 and 22 is almost verbatim repeated. He says, where shall wisdom be found? That's what I need. Where is the place of understanding? And in Hebrew parallelism, what I would say to you is in this case, wisdom and understanding are the same thing. It's just driving home the deep question. Where is wisdom? Now, we need a working definition of wisdom to kind of traffic this. So um, let me see if we can grasp what that is very simply. In the imagery of the Old Testament and in the poetry of the Old Testament, wisdom is something like the architecture of all creation. Okay, it's something like the design, the blueprint, the architect's plans of all things that matter. And Job says, I want to know how my life fits into that blueprint. Proverbs chapter 3.19 says this, that the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So Job's saying, I want to access what the architect had at his disposal and what the architect was thinking when my life and all this suffering was a part of the design. Understand with me, Job is not asking for a little bit of information or, or his friend's best guess. He wants to access nothing that he could ever read in a book written by any human being that has access to any form of knowledge. He wants to go deeper still. He wants to find wisdom which God had from eternity at the beginning. He says it in our passage, actually, if you look at the very last part of it, verse 25 or so. He says this, he says, when God gave the wind its weight and the waters its measure, when God decreed the way that rain and lightning exist, in other words, when God was the architect of all creation, Job says, in that moment, then God saw it, then God declared it, then he established it, then he searched it out. What is it? 
I'd propose to you it was the wisdom that the architect himself had when he created all things. And Job is saying, just like a miner deep down in a dark shaft, I want to search for that wisdom. You're of little help, my friends, he says. You've given me your opinion. But what I am searching for cannot be found from your mouth or from the mouths of those in this creation. It's not found here. I'm mining in the dark here. I want to have God's architectural plans that include my life. He says in verse 15 and 19, this wisdom must be found. I mean, I have to find it. This is the only thing of value worth seeking after. But he says, I know this wisdom's eternal. It's accurate. It's altogether different. And it's so valuable, it could never be bought or exchanged for anything that man searches out under the sun and then tries to exchange it for the eternal wisdom of God. It doesn't work that way. No pearl, not the greatest pearl, is worth the value of this wisdom. I would ask you, I ask myself and I have this week, does God, the eternal architect, the eternal creator, the one whose design of creation and redemption, does that search for who he is and what he did all creation for, does that cause you to fixate on a search that's deeper than anything you found on the surface? Does that yearning to understand how the God who designed all things, he's aware of all the pain. He must have been always aware of all the pain and the suffering as well as the blessing and the joy. He, he knows every hair on every one of our heads, which means he knows the breadth and then the length of every one of our days. Does that knowledge by which God is God and he's revealed what he wants us to know about, but there's secret things we can't know about, does just the search for that satisfy you? Does it happen for you? I apologize to Corey this morning because we've got some conversations we've been having and I was like, in the middle of our conversation, I wish I would have stepped out and thought about what this text is saying because I was looking for a reason on the surface for X, Y, and Z and I do it all the time. Job says, this can't be found in this world. It's got a value that means I must find it, but it can't be found in this world. Verse 13 and verse 21 bracket the value of wisdom. He says in 13, it's not found in the land of the living. He says in verse 21, it's hidden from all the eyes of those who are living. He says the birds of the air, they can't do a flyover and peer down and see this wisdom. It can't be found above with the birds, but it also can't be found below. And so you see in verse 22, he says, even if we spoke with Abaddon and death themselves... Now, what is that? Well, he's personifying these terrible powers. Abaddon in Revelation 9-11 is the angel of the bottomless pit, bottomless pit in hell. And, and so I was reading one commentator and said, you know, let's summarize Job's statement there in verse 22 like this. So I quote Christopher Ash: Even these terrible personified powers would shrug their shoulders and say, well, yes, if you press me, I think I did once hear third-hand a rumor that somewhere wisdom might exist. I had a second cousin who once worked for a man who seemed to think he'd heard a conversation in a pub where someone might have been talking about wisdom, but I can't quite remember, nor do I know where it's found. Job says it must be found, but it can't be found. Not in a bookstore, not in an article on social media, not on NPR or Fox News or CNN, not even by your own experience. 
That's what Job says. Job says, nowhere in the created order can the wisdom that I am searching for be found. And he says, but the problem is, I need that wisdom to navigate the suffering I'm going through. My friends, they say they know where it is. And they told me what to do with what they think is God's wisdom, but they don't know it. None of us can know it, and I don't know it. But notice what Job does in verse 23. He says, it's a good thing that God knows it. God knows that it exists. In verse 23, God understands the way to it. And we jump to verse 28. And God said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that is understanding. Let me show you the significance of this. God has not spoken since the first two chapters of this book. Job quotes God. This is the first time God has said anything in about 26, 27 chapters. And Job quotes God and says that wisdom is God himself. Wisdom is awe and fear and worship of him who is the architect of all things. It's not looking for what I, I need to know from his eternal wisdom, it's him that I have to know. If I have any chance to understand any of this. Because Job essentially says, how can we finite creatures search for that outside of creation eternal God when we're stuck inside of our fallen creation? Job says, I can't. We cannot. But if we can't go into the realm of eternity to understand who God is, then where do we get the wisdom to turn away from evil? Which is what is mentioned in verse 28. If, if we cannot go into the eternal place and find what we're looking for, then how can we discern if what presents itself as good for us is actually good or not? Or is a twisting up of the Creator's actual architecture and design? And do we not live in a culture now where people are saying, that's good because it feels good and by my design it looks great? If... How are we, if we can't go into eternity, then how are we supposed to understand when I've settled for Jim's kingdom instead of living for God's kingdom revealed in Christ? If, if I can't go into the eternal place and understand this wisdom, then if I'm talking to another friend and they say they're going through a, a challenge or a trial, how do I have any chance at all of doing anything other than what Job's friends do when they say, I got it figured out. Let me tell you the answer to your problem. It's just foolishness that would come out of my mouth. Simply put, Job says, I know where wisdom is. It's God himself. But the problem is, is we are finite, frail, fallen human beings, and we cannot go into eternity to access that architectural plan from the architect himself to figure out how our suffering and our story fits into his plan. And Job says, it's hubris when someone shows up and says, let me tell you God's plan and why it's happening to you the way it is. So what do we do? And here's the gospel turn. Job knows the wisdom is found in the Lord himself. And isn't that what the whole of the Bible teaches? That God came from eternity down to man because we would have no chance to go from creation up to eternity to understand the broken world we live in. And that God took himself, the very image of the Father, John chapter 1, 
Jesus himself was God in the flesh, and he became one of us. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. In him was life, and God took himself and entered into our world under the sun. Colossians 2 says that in Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom came to us when we couldn't go to access the wisdom that Job knows he has to have. We know that wisdom was there at creation. It's that great proverb, Proverbs 8, kind of personifies wisdom, if you've read that. When he established the heavens, I, wisdom, was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limits. Sounds a lot like Job here. Proverbs 8, verse 30, Then I was beside him. I was a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Wisdom was at creation. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the wisdom that's come into creation. So in a discipleship group meeting earlier this week, and I was talking with somebody. We were talking about the Gospel of John. Think of that scene with me in John 7 when Jesus shows up in the temple. And all these people who think they know all the answers, they know the right way to God. And Jesus stands up. And what shocked me in preaching John 7 when we did that book was when I came to verse 37, I realized Jesus didn't like politely say, hey, if you're thirsty, like stop trying to find that water satisfying, like come to me. The text says that he stood up and he screamed. Is anybody thirsty? Are you searching for something that will satisfy your thirst? Come to me. I give water, and if you drink of it, you will be cleansed, and you will never be thirsty again. Translation, the search is supposed to lead you to me. And yet, when the search leads us to Jesus, what does the Bible say about just how God displayed his power and his rescue for people like Job and like us? Well, we read it in the service already today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me read some parts of it to you. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its own wisdom. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who would believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishly dumb to the Jews. And those who are called Jews and Greeks, it's Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast and say they have it figured out. And because of him, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So people of God, here's the way we culminate most of our Job's sermons so far, right? Job reveals Jesus. Job says, where can wisdom be found? And the gospel says, in Jesus. You want to know the blueprint of your suffering? Your suffering is supposed to show you the suffering of Jesus. You want to know the blueprint of how to handle death? He suffered sin's death so that we will reign and live with him forever and ever. You want to have access to the architect of all eternity? He came in the flesh and his name was Jesus. Brothers and sisters, may we not be like Job's friends and when we give each other advice, we tell each other what we know 
if what we know doesn't start and end with helping the person to whom God has asked us to engage a deeper understanding of all that God has chosen to do in Jesus. And if you do that with someone who doesn't know the gospel, you know what you call that? Evangelism. And when you do that with someone who knows the gospel but is having trouble navigating their suffering and they're looking for a solution on earth and they don't think that the solution of the gospel is enough and you show them Jesus, that's called discipleship. And that should be happening on a daily basis among us. It should be happening in our homes and it can't happen with pride attached to it. Where can we find wisdom and understanding to understand what's happening in our life now? Believing that God himself, the eternal architect, came to earth. And his promises and his blueprint have proven accurate and true. And we can know him through our suffering and our trials, participation in his plan. And his plan will one day be for all to be redeemed and pain to be no more and sin to be no more and death to be no more. Let's let Job help us beg for wisdom and let's see Jesus together. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for the the beauty of this poetic chapter. Would you please help those in this room and in this church who don't think it's worth trying to search anymore. They've not found the answer for whatever may be the trial they're addressing. And would you forgive us if we doubt that you have wisdom enough to give us redemption in the moment as well as promise hope for the future. For those who don't ask questions, but who give answers, would you expose each of us to ourselves if the answers we give are often just advice that is so temporary that it's mostly from this world. Would you forgive us if we've not had the humility of being a question asker who's seen the question take us on a search that then changes us and humbles us and leads us to Jesus? And would we not take any credit for that search, but would we believe that you came down to earth because we would have never found you We would have never wanted to. We wouldn't have even cared and we'd be lost. But because you came to us, would you give us confidence to be question askers who trust that we will find you? And now as we take the Lord's Supper, would you nourish us? Would we taste and see that you are good, that heaven has come down to earth? Would we experience the wisdom and the power of God in the gospel that is not foolishness to us, it's everything as we now partake. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.